Can we be with Jeff, Lord, as he gives us your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up uh, to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in the first chapter of Hebrews this morning. We'll just go ahead and dive right into this morning's text. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, we'll be looking at the first four verses there. The book of Hebrews is located right after Philemon and right before James, so near the back of your New Testament there. I'll give you a minute to find that. So I ask you to just once again to stand as we read the Word of God this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you again, Lord, expectant, uh, just for what you're going to reveal in your word this morning as we open up the first four verses in the book of Hebrews, God that is rich in theology. It's easy enough for a child to understand, and yet the depths is beyond what we can even comprehend. So God, I pray that we grab what you would have us hear this morning of your word, and that you would work through me and the hearts of everyone here this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but has there ever been a time in your life where you wished you could go back in time? And I'm not just talking about, like, historically, like going back to the time of the dinosaurs or a time in history before your existence, but specifically to you. Has there ever been a time in your life where you wanted to go back to a certain part of your life that was just really good and you just wanted to stay there for a while? Maybe it was a time in your life where things were going pretty smoothly, things were going well in your family, things were going well at your job, uh, things were just rolling for you, and like life was just easy and it was comfortable. Uh, maybe it was uh, a certain vacation that you took and you were at some other locale uh, here in the United States or around the world and you just wanted to stay there. You didn't want it to end, but eventually, you know, the vacations end and you have to go back home. Uh, this week, I took some time off of work. We didn't travel anywhere, but the reality this morning I had to realize and come to grips with was that I have to go back to work tomorrow. I don't want to do that, <laughs> to be honest with you, and I think all of us feel that way in one moment or another, where we, we find ourselves in this situation where things are comfortable. We don't want to go, we don't want to move forward. We just want time to stop, and we want to live in this moment that is so good, and we just, we just want to have that extended longer. Uh, yet, what is inevitable in all of our lives is time. It's something that we all have to cope with. Even as I speak, time is progressing. None of us can freeze time, and none of us can go back in time, no matter how badly we may want to do that. 
And so time is something that we have to cope with. And so in our lives, as a coping strategy, we often find ourselves wanting to go back to times that are more comfortable, or times where we just felt like things were going really well. And it's actually a very human thing to do. We've all done it at one time or another, and psychologists have even done studies about it, and they have this word that you're probably familiar with, but it's called nostalgia, right? Have you ever had that feeling of nostalgia or just feeling of nostalgic for a, a better time, a time that was just better than the current time and circumstances that you're going through now? The basic definition of nostalgia is a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. And so psychologists have done studies on nostalgia, and they actually say to a certain extent it's healthy. It's healthy for us to be nostalgic about certain times in our lives, particularly if you're going through a hard time in the present. Because they say looking back will not only give you fond memories and will boost your current morale, but actually give you hope for the future, that things will not always be that the way they are right now if you're going through a difficult time. And so psychologists say that, that it's healthy. And so it's, it's a practice that we do to cope with the difficulties of life. But nostalgia can also be dangerous because we can be stuck in nostalgia if we're not careful. The current circumstances of our lives may be difficult and we may use nostalgia as a way to escape those circumstances, so much so that we may be missing what God is trying to tell us in the present. If we constantly focus on what happened in the past, or we desperately want to seek or go back to what we consider the glory days of our lives, whatever that is for you, then we miss what God is doing in the present, and we may miss what God has for us in the future. I don't know how many of you in this present moment, in the year that is 2020, have wanted to go back to another time. I don't know if 2019 ever looked so good for us as it has this year. I don't think any of us last year would have said, man, 2019 is our year. This is it. This is our moment. But in the present time, as we look at everything that has gone this year, COVID-19, political turmoil, rioting in the streets, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask, all the difficulties that is this year, many of us are frustrated, we're angry, we're tired, and we just want to go back to what we consider to be normal or what would be considered a time that is more comfortable, a time that we reflect upon that is easier that we consider than this present time. But I think, in a certain extent, that this is dangerous thinking because we may miss what God is trying to do in our current moment in time. And I think that God is trying to do something in our lives, and I think he may be trying to do something in the life of our church. And so if our goal is always to go back to the way things were, if our goal is always to return to a sense of normalcy, how they used to be, we may miss the very voice of God that is speaking to us in this current moment in time. And it's a trust issue. We are in danger if our primary focus is to go back to a time that is simply more comfortable for us. If you ever felt that way and you're feeling that way now, then you're in the same company as the original recipients were to this letter of the Hebrews. 
The book of Hebrews was written by an unknown author. We don't know who it was who wrote the book of Hebrews. And for our purposes today, it really doesn't matter. I'm not going to dive into that. There's speculations and there's lots of papers written on who wrote the book of Hebrews. And, but we're not going to dive into that this morning. But the book of Hebrews was written to a church, uh, most likely in Rome or in that area of Rome. It may have been a group of churches, but it was primarily made up of Jewish believers who were coming out of their Jewish culture and religion and were following Christ for the very first time. And so they were basically new Christians coming out of a rich history of uh, Jewish identity and culture and worship, and they were struggling to find their identity as new believers in Christ. And so coming out of a rich theology of Jewish culture, they would have been used to going to the temple. In fact, when this book was written, this letter to the Hebrews was written, the temple was likely still in existence in Jerusalem. It hadn't been destroyed by the Romans yet, so it was likely before AD 70. And so they would have had that memory of going to the temple and worshiping and the, just the glorious experience that was involved in that and all the history of the sacrificial system and the patriarchs and everything. And so they were coming out of that and entering into a new religion where they didn't have a temple. They didn't have a synagogue. They went from worshiping in this glorious temple to meeting in homes with other families and having Bible studies together and looking at the scriptures together, and some of the, the new car smell of Christianity was being wore off little by little as time progressed. Because not only was it less glorious to sit in somebody's home and talk about the scriptures and what was going on, but it was also difficult to cope with a new way of life. They didn't get the, uh, the rich history of the Jewish culture anymore. Their lives were being transformed. There was no sacrificial system. There was no uh, glorious retelling necessarily of, of the great prophets of the past, of Elijah and Moses and Abraham. And they had to make that transition to what God was telling them in that current moment. And so the writer of Hebrews speaks into this. And if you read the entire book of Hebrews, you'll, you'll find out that it's written less like a letter, like we see in other New Testament books, and it's written more like a sermon. In fact, in the first, three, or th first four verses here, there's no introduction. Every other book of the New Testament, you have some sort of introduction about who's writing it, who the recipients are, but there's no introduction in the book of Hebrews. He just gets straight into it. And so his main point here is he's wanting these new Christians to persevere in their current moment in time. And he's not wanting them to go back to the way things were. He doesn't want them to be nostalgic for the way things used to be, because if they are, they're missing the point of Christianity. They're missing what God is wanting to tell them and what he's wanting to do through them, through the power of the gospel and through the power of Jesus. And so we're looking at these first four verses here this morning, and these first four verses are short, and yet it contains a rich theology of the entire book of Hebrews. I encourage you, after this is over, this week, if you go through the book of Hebrews, you'll see all of these elements unpacked throughout the entire letter of the Hebrews. And so this, this first four verses here, it sets the theological stage for the entirety of the book of Hebrews. So as we'll dive in this morning, I think we have uh, some points that we can pick up, that we can learn from the writer of Hebrews here, um, as they 
we're going through their time of looking back. And as we look in our time now, we want to go back to a time that is easier or more comfortable. We can pick up some theological truth to help us persevere in our current time. So verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the writer of Hebrews goes back. He talks about how God has spoke, and this is a significant theological truth. It's just the fact that God speaks uh, in this day and time, and even in now, talking about back then and also now, we have lots of different religions and lots of different gods that people worship. Uh, you have Islam, uh, you have uh, Buddhism, and all these other religions where God doesn't speak, or maybe he's just spoken to one person, and one person has written down these facts about God, and that's how you're informed about God. But that's not so with Christianity. God has spoken, and the writer of Hebrews says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And we see that through the history of the Bible, that God speaks. It's a simple fact, but it's so, uh, it's so deep and true that God has chosen to speak. He's chosen to reveal himself to us. And this, this fact is what drives us to God, the fact that he wants to engage us in relationship, that he desires to have a relationship with us. And he's spoken to us through many times and many ways. And we see that through the history of Scripture. God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. He created them for fellowship. They spoke to Adam, or they spoke to God face to face. They walked with God in the garden, and they got to experience that fellowship with him. And then when sin entered the world, God still spoke. And he spoke in various ways and at many times. And God spoke the very first promise we see of his redemptive plan in Genesis 3.15, where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see God speak for the very first time after Adam and Eve have sinned. And what he's speaking is this unraveling redemptive plan that takes years and years and years to fully unravel. And we see God speaking in different ways as part of this plan. So he speaks this very first promise, and then we roll through the Old Testament, and we see God speaking to Moses through the Mosaic law. And we have the law handed down on Mount Sinai to Moses. And there's this thundering cloud, and God speaks in that way uh, of just this, this powerful law about who he is and how we can relate to him in light of our sin. And then God speaks through, through prophets throughout history. You have Elijah, and you have Elisha, and you have these other prophets who are speaking the very word of God. They're informing the kings of, uh, and the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, about, about who God is and how he relates to the people. And he's constantly speaking a word about who he is and who we are. And as he's revealing himself, he's revealing himself in different parts and pieces. I don't know if you've ever put together a large jigsaw puzzle, but when you do, you have to do it in chunks, right? Uh, I don't know what your strategy is, if you ever put together like a 1,000-piece puzzle, but generally you kind of start with like the border pieces, and then you kind of work your way in, and you just try to line up all the colors and everything. But that, that's kind of how God revealed himself through the Old Testament. He reveals himself in small chunks, and he's constantly showing a different part of his character as we go through the Old Testament. And he's speaking in many ways and in many times. And he's speaking through the ancestors of these uh, new Jewish Christians here by the prophets. And he's revealing himself. 
And as that unfolds, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So in verse 2, the writer of Hebrews makes a transition. He says, God has been revealing himself through hundreds of years of Jewish history, and he's done so in many ways and in many times. But now, in these last days, the days that we're currently living in now, like Jesus has died, he's resurrected, we're in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So God has spoken to us through Jesus, and there's a a sense of finality here, that God has spoken in these many ways in different times, and he's given us different parts of the puzzle, and finally, the puzzle is complete through Jesus. And Jesus is the completion of that puzzle. And this is how he speaks to us today. He's speaking to us through his son. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that very first promise in Genesis 3.15 of the uh, enmity between you and the woman. And Jesus solves the problem of sin. And he is the completion and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And because he is that fulfillment, in verse 2 he says, whom he appointed the heir of, of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus isn't just somebody who came along and was born in the New Testament, as we see at the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospels, but we see that Jesus was also present in the creation. This is, again, this is a rich theology here of the Trinity and the fact that Jesus was present in creation, that he is God's Son, and he's watched all of this unfold and finally made his appearance in the New Testament. But Jesus was there uh, when the world was created. We see in John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so it's significant in John 1 here. He says, In the beginning was the Word. Remember we said in verse 1 here, God speaks. And so when God speaks... He speaks with words, and so Jesus is called the Word. So God is speaking his Son to us. If you want to know who God is, we look to Jesus, and we see the very nature of God, and we we can relate to him in that way, where Jesus is the Word. Uh, The Greek word word for word in this instance is, is logos, and it's where we derive our English word of logic. And so God's logic, his very thoughts, and his communication to us is Jesus Christ. And so if we want to relate to God, if we want to come to know God, if we want to understand what God is speaking to us, we look no further than who Jesus is, and we study him, and we want to know him, and we get to know God through Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's words that he has spoken in the Old Testament. This is it. It's Jesus. And so for those recipients of this letter for the first time who are longing to go back to Old Testament times, 
who were longing to go back to that sacrificial system because it was familiar to them, because it was comfortable for them, because it seemed like a better time to live in, it was a little more comfortable, a little less persecution maybe, uh, had a little more glory associated with it. The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, God has revealed himself through his son. If you want to know God, don't go back to the sacrificial system. Go to Jesus, because this is the final word. Pursue Christ. Persevere in your faith in Christ. Because Jesus is the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So if we're tempted to go back, the Jewish people were tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. Well, Jesus existed before all of that happened anyways. And so they should be pursuing Christ. Because he is the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The writer continues in verse 3. says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. This term radiance is, is kind of just brightness. And when we think about God, we think about the glory of God. There's instances in the New Testament where Jesus was glowing with the radiance of God. Just think through the, the transfiguration, where Jesus is transformed and his garments became uh, exceedingly white, the scriptures say. And then also in the book of Acts, where he appears to Paul, and Paul is utterly blinded by light coming from Jesus. It was uh, just emanating from his person, and Paul is blinded for three days until he's healed by Ananias. But we have this idea of God and his glory and his radiance. And Moses, in the Old Testament, when he would speak with God on the Mount Sinai, they would have to put a veil over his face because his face was so bright that it would hurt people's eyes, and he had to hide the glory of God on his face. And so uh, the, the recipients of this letter, they would have remembered the glory of God, and now the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is that radiance, that light. He is this light. All the glory that you associate with historic Judaism, this is, it's Jesus. So move forward with Jesus. Don't go back to the old way of doing things. Move forward with Jesus, because Jesus, Jesus is better than all of those things. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and not only that, he's the exact imprint of his nature, he says in verse 3. Exact imprint is a really good translation of this. Some uh, translations might say likeness. Uh, the, the, the Greek word there is actually character, um, where we get our English word character. Um, and so the idea that the writer is going for here, uh, back in this time, they would have printed uh, or made their currency, and they would have used like an engraving tool, kind of like a stamp. And they would have taken a clay or something like that, and they would have imprinted whoever's face they wanted to put on there, Caesar or whoever was in power uh, during those times. And it would have had the, the imprint of this person's face, kind of like we see on our coins that we have today. We have George Washington and all of those other guys on our coins. And so this is exactly what he's talking about in this instance. And so Jesus isn't just another prophet. He's not Abraham. He's not Moses. He's not Elijah. He's the better versions of all of those guys, and, but he's also the exact imprint of God. If you have kids, you kind of understand this concept as well. You have children. They kind of look like you. Sometimes they act like you, for better or for worse, and so you can see that through your children, and I know I see that in my kids when they do something, either good or bad. Um, I try to take all the good, and uh, that's not always true. Sometimes they do bad things like, well, yep, that's me. <laughs> I see that in my kids. Um, but with Jesus, he inherits 
all of who God is. And we know all of who God is is good. And so he inherits, he's the exact imprint of God. If we want to know who God is, just look to Jesus. Don't go back to another way of thinking about God. Pursue Christ. And that's what he's telling the recipients here of this letter. And not only is he the exact imprint of his nature, but he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we talked about Jesus being present during the creation, and he currently upholds it by the word of his power. The rest of verse 3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the entry point for the gospel, the fact that there is a problem of sin. Jesus solves the problem of sin. The Old Testament way of doing things was incomplete. It didn't resolve the problem of sin. It helped in relating to God, but it didn't resolve the issue. There was still sin. And the whole sacrificial system was it came into being just to show that Jesus would one day pay the penalty for sin, and he would make purification. Another word for purification is atonement for sin. He would be the payment for this sin that would satisfy the wrath of God. And so Jesus makes purification for sins. And again, if we go back and talk about Jesus being present at the creation, sometimes we imagine Jesus just kind of showing up and then dying for our sins in the New Testament. Yet we have to reckon with this truth that Jesus was present for the creation. He saw Adam and Eve in their sinless nature, and he saw them sin. He was there. He witnessed it. And when he witnessed them sin, he knew right then and there that he would have to step in, and he would have to die to pay the penalty for sin. And so Jesus isn't uninformed about what's going on, He's known exactly throughout all of history that he would have to make purification for sins. And he didn't stand passively by. He and the Father agreed on a plan that he would suffer and die and make purification for your sins and my sins. And this is better. This is better than anything we could have ever hoped for or wished for. And it's the truth of the gospel. It's what makes Christianity different from any other religion in the world. Is that God himself came to earth and died for our sins. No other religion has that. There's no other religion where a God has come down and sacrificed of himself. Every other religion says, do this and you can have fellowship with God. It's always a be better, do more type of religion. Christianity is not that. Christianity is that God himself sacrifices himself so we can have relationship with him. And when we have relationship with him, we trust him for the atonement of our sins, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, actually comes and lives inside of us and lives the life that we can no longer live for ourselves because of sin. Christianity is the only religion where a man's God comes down and lives inside of him. That's Christianity. And so you have the book of Hebrews is written to this, uh, these new Christians who want to go back to the Jewish system. And the writer of Hebrews is like, no, don't go back. This is so much better. You don't realize what you're missing by wanting to go back. It may not look glorious, but it is. And that's where we are in our current moment as well. We want to go back to a better time. We want to go back where things were just easier and more comfortable. We, we, we want to go back to a time where the church was in its heyday. And we, we're in this church now where this church had a heyday. 
And there's some strong history of this church. And there was several hundred members of this church. And we're reaching the community. And we look around now, and there's 40 or 50 of us, or whatever it is. And we think, well, man, those times were so much better. And yet, if we look at the truth of the gospel, the gospel is always for the present time. And God wants to speak to us through the gospel. And he wants us to live the gospel each and every day. We can't just look back and constantly want to go back. We need to push forward and see what God wants to do through us here and now. Because Jesus is better. No matter what the times were, no matter how great things were, Jesus is better. When Jesus made purification for our sins, he sacrificed of himself. The Bible says that he was the propitiation for our sins, which is just a a word that means just a payment that satisfies. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God that we rightly deserved. And it wasn't something that we do to dress ourselves up better. A verse that we quote here often is Romans 5, 8. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we, was, while we were still in active rebellion to God, Christ still died for us. And this is the truth of the gospel. The, uh, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the one instance in the Bible that I am aware of where it refers to the power of God. It's the descriptor, the power of God. Now, God does powerful things. We see all throughout the Old and New Testament, God doing powerful things. He's healing people. There's natural disasters that God is in charge of, and he's using, like the flood, and you see him thundering on Mount Sinai. Yet, the, the Bible here in Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's the gospel that is better than anything else that we have to look back to. It's the gospel, and the gospel always informs our present. And one of the the most tragic things in Christianity is that we've viewed the basic truth of the gospel as kind of an entry point into Christianity. It's kind of like the elementary truth of the Bible. You come, you invite Jesus into your life, and then the rest is just trying to be like a good person or trying to follow these moral ways of living. But the gospel isn't just the entry point into Christianity. In fact, J.D. Greer, uh, the pastor or the leader of the SBC, says uh, the, the gospel isn't just the diving board, but it's actually the whole pool. And it's the deep end of the pool. You cannot mine the depths of the gospel long enough. The gospel is constantly speaking to us and to our current situation. And so as we look at our lives right now, with all the confusion, the turmoil, the difficulties, and we want to go back to a time that's easier, more comfortable, the gospel is informing us how to deal with our time right now, how we move forward as a church. The gospel is the answer, as it always has been. The gospel is always speaking in the present. It's not just the entry point to Christianity. It is Christianity. It's the whole point. It's all of it. And so if we're struggling right now, what we need the most is the gospel. We need the gospel rehearsed in our minds because it is the power of God for salvation. The only way we're going to get through this difficult time right now with COVID and with the political turmoil of the day is that we need the gospel. We need it to transform us and to transform our church and to transform those around us. 
in Hebrews 1, 4. Well, actually, going back to verse 3, it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus finishes his work. He dies on the cross. He's resurrected. He ascends into heaven, and he doesn't just sit there passively, but he sits at the right hand of God, the right hand being the position of power and authority. So everything that God has done comes through Jesus. God works through the person of Jesus. Later on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is sitting next to the Father, and he's open to us in our time of need. He's able to sympathize with us because he came to earth. He went through everything that we have gone through. He understands. He can sympathize with us, yet he was without sin. And so because of his work, we can approach him with confidence, drawing near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Later on in the Bible, it will say that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is always for us. He's not just sitting and waiting for things to consummate or waiting for uh, the end of all things, but he's actively fighting for us. He's interceding on our behalf. He's welcoming us into the presence of the Father. His work was actually to reunite us with God the Father. And so he welcomes us into his presence, into the presence of the Father. And we receive acceptance because of his finished work. In verse 4, continuing on, it says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And this begins a discourse in the very first chapter where the writer of Hebrews is going to make a case that Jesus is greater than the angels. And so there's some theological concepts we can pull from that, but that's kind of the intro into the rest of chapter 1, and we won't get into all of that today. But the, the whole idea and the concept of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. And so he's going to talk about Jesus being better than the angels. He's going to talk about Jesus being better than the high priest, because he is the ultimate high priest, and how Jesus is better than the prophets, and he's the greater Moses, and all of these things. And so the idea is that we persevere in our present time, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and sits at the right hand of God. In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, George Guthrie says that right thinking leads to right choices in life. Right thinking leads to right choices in life. I think that sums up a little bit of these first four verses in the book of Hebrews. Right thinking leads to right choices in life. We can easily get stuck. We can easily get stuck in a time that... Uh, we thought was better, a time that we'd like to go back to. However, the gospel informs us that our present time cannot get any better because of who Jesus is and who he is and can be through us. So as we travel through this uncertain time with the campaign, the election, we have some choices to make. We can either 
wish to go back in time to a time that was better, and we can pursue all of our efforts to try to make things like they used to be, however good they were, or we can wait and we can pursue Christ. We can wait and see what God may have for us in this moment. Because I am convinced that God is doing something new, and he's doing something different. And if we are constantly trying to go back to the way things were, I think we're going to miss it. I don't want to miss what God wants to do. I don't want to miss what he wants to do in my life, personally. I don't want to miss what he wants to do in the life of our church. I don't know what that's going to look like. And that's what makes it difficult. And that's what makes the past so appealing, because it's we know what it looks like, but we don't know what the future is going to look like. And so my encouragement to us this morning is that we continue to pursue Christ. We pursue the glories of the gospel, continue to dive into the swimming pool in the depths of the gospel and see how it speaks to us in this moment. God has spoken. He's spoken in many ways in various times. And finally, he has spoken to us through his son and through the truth of the gospel. And we have the ability to dive into the depths of the gospel and see that how that is going to inform our present. Right thinking leads to right choices in life. Let's meditate on the truths of the gospel and not try to go back to a time that's more comfortable. Let's pursue Christ together. Let's be better together and exalt him and make much of Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, um, your word is truth. Your word is deep and it is glorious, God. And I thank you that we live in a time where we have the full, complete picture of who you are. That in previous times you revealed yourself in different ways and you just gave pieces of your nature and of your character like a large jigsaw puzzle, but now we have the fullness of who you are in one person, Jesus Christ. And we have the ability to follow you, Lord, as who you are in the person of Jesus. And God, we may look back to a time that is more comfortable to us. We may look back to a time that is more convenient, less stressful. But God, may we not miss what you are currently telling us in this moment in the life of our church. We don't know what it looks like, God. We don't know what you're going to do in our church, what ministry is going to look like here next year, five years from now, 15 years from now, even five months from now, God. But Lord, it's our desire to follow you and to listen to your voice during this time, understanding that you are sovereign and that you're going to act in supernatural ways, God. Lord, this morning, let's set aside the weight of nostalgia if it's holding us back. Let's set aside our own preferences, our own comforts. Let's embrace the current moment and mind the depths of the gospel and display the gospel to others. And God, we trust you that you're going to work through us, that you have our best intentions in mind, that you are sovereignly working in all of our circumstances. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.